Thanks for joining us today at Springwell Church, where we want to draw spiritually thirsty people to Jesus by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. We hope that today's message builds you up, gives you a little insight, and helps you find a brand new perspective. You can find us in Taylor, South Carolina, and online at springwell.org. That's springwell.org. Now let's jump into the message. So you ready to jump into the message for today? So, especially now, maybe more than any other time, I think that we would all agree that life can, life can be tough, right? And so I would say that the weight of our worries can push, can push us down into a very deep pit of despair. I mean, things happen in life. We've all been certainly made aware of, through this thing called COVID-19, of what that can do, the worry that it can bring on you, right? And so if you're not careful what people, where people find themselves is in the deep pit of despair. I mean, you're overwhelmed. You're discouraged. You need that, that, that personal interaction. You need face-to-face interaction. Sometimes you need to be able to reach out and touch somebody. I know a pastor that said literally he tries to make X number of touches every single Sunday just to put his hand on somebody's shoulder, to shake somebody's hand, just because of the need of of touch, And so we find ourselves kind of in that deep pit of despair. But you know what? It's not just that. Sometimes our own sin can weigh us down so much that we feel like that we'll never, ever get out of that pit ever again, right? Hey, anybody in the room? Maybe the sinners were all in the 9 o'clock service, but I'm pretty sure we got a few in, in the service as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, <clears throat> have you ever just been so overwhelmed by your sin? And you know you're guilty, and you find yourself in the pit of despair, and you just, with everything that's in you, you're trying to climb your way out, but you just can't, right? Well, in case you missed uh, last week, we're looking at the life of Joseph. This is Joseph of the Old Testament, not Joseph of the New Testament. And he certainly experienced the pain of the pit. And so today, what we want to look at is we want to look at this sweet point that, that, that there's life after the pit. Hello, are you with me? Because if you were here last week, you probably left going, dude, that was like a depressing message, you know? I mean, like, is there any hope for somebody that really has a heart for God and follow, follows God? And the answer to that is yes. And so today is going to be a really upbeat kind of message. Thank you. Appreciate it. So let me give you a quick review of last week for those of you that weren't here. Joseph was the favorite of 12 sons. And eventually, his 11 brothers started to hate him because dear old dad loved him more. And when I say he loved him more, no, I'm not kidding you. It's not it, literally in the scripture that, that dad said, I love him more than I love you. He even gave him this, this beautiful coat, this elaborate long coat. And he gave it to him saying to his other sons, I love this son more. And this son will not have to work and toil like you guys will. That's not a good relationship building, brotherly love kind of, you know, building activity, right? And so because of that, these, these brothers really hated him. And the straw that broke the camel's back, really, was, uh, was when he told them these two dreams. And in these two dreams, he said, basically, I'm going to rule over you, and I'm going to rule my whole family for the rest of your life. Amen. Don't you love me, brothers? Well, they didn't love him. In fact, they started to hate him, hate him even more when they had that information about the dreams. So his brothers kind of had their moment when dear old dad sent Joseph out in the middle of nowhere again to check on them and to bring back a report. Now, if you know anything from last week, you'll know, well, this sounds like something that happened one time before, right? 
it kind of the story kind of opens up where Joseph is going out into the field and he checks on his brothers and comes back and gives his brother give his dad a bad report. Brothers are just lazy. They're not working. Whatever the case might be. And so this sounds like something is about to happen again. So they saw him coming from a distance. So they come up with this plan to beat him up and to throw him in a pit and leave him there to die. But two of the really good-hearted brothers say, no, 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 let's don't kill him. Let's sell him. I mean, why, why in the world would we want to kill him when we can sell him? And we can make some money off of him. Then we won't be guilty of murder. And so they concoct this plan, and they basically eventually sold him into some slave traders who were headed to Egypt. And that's where we left off last week. And it was a really encouraging message. He went from the pit to being sold into slavery. Yay! Today's going to be great. We're going to be in Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was, one of Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who were taking him there. So Joseph was sold to a man named Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. Bottom line is he was a powerful man. Bottom line is like he was maybe probably the commander-in-chief to one of the most powerful armies in the world. So think about it. It's getting better, right? I mean, if you're going to be in slavery, that's not a good thing. But at least to be, you know, the slave of somebody really rich is better than being the slave of somebody that's really poor. Hello? I got nothing. I got nothing from nobody. Y'all just looking at me like a calf looking in a new gate. I mean, slavery is not good. But at least I want to be, I want to have a rich master. Or maybe that's just me. Rich, poor, I'll choose rich. And so maybe you're looking at this, well, you know what? Things are kind of looking up. You know, the story's getting a little bit better. He's, he's in the house of a very powerful official, government official. Things are looking up. Then it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Ha! The Lord was with him, so he prospered. This must be the Baptist crowd. I don't know. So all the people who would really love to prosper, say Amen. And somebody said, I'm not, I'm not buying this. <laughs> like, prosperity is not a good thing. Rich or poor, would you choose? I would too. <laughs> so it looks like a good thing. And why did he prosper? Yeah, that's sweet. So in other words, if you looked at last week, honestly, you're thinking to yourself, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, he's just not the brightest bulb in the room. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, because if you look at his story, he had these dreams and then he told his brothers. He's got this coat and he goes out to see his brothers with wearing the coat. You would think, come on, dummy, take the coat off. Don't wear the coat. It just reminds your brothers that you think that one day that you're actually going to rule over them, that you'll work all your life, that we'll work all our life, and that he never will have to work. So when you look at it, you think, man, this, this guy is not that smart. But it says he prospered because the Lord was with him. I just think that's sweet. So this is really important. The reason that Joseph prospered was not because he was great, not because he was a godly man, not because he had great talent or ability. It was because God was with him. One of the things I've learned over the years from being in church I think is that there is, there's always a group of people who, who look at themselves and you compare yourself to somebody else and you think, I'm never going to be as good as she is. I'm never going to be able to sing or lead like he can lead. And so therefore, you look at yourself and you think, 
I'm never going to be able to be successful. I know what it's like to be a pastor and look at all the, the mega churches and the super pastors in the world and compare yourself to them and to think, I'm never going to be, I'll never, I'll never be that guy. And the thing that I've learned over the years is I've never put any stock in, in my ability as a communicator. But one of the things that I've always known is that somehow God takes me as I am and he uses me. It's like the most amazing thing. We give an invitation here, and people get saved every single week. And the thing that's beautiful about that to me is that I had nothing to do with it. It's God showing up to do something that I know that I can't do. So if you're one of those people, and you don't really think that you're all that in a bag of chips, I'm just saying that maybe there's hope for you because there was hope for Joseph. So the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he touched, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. So things are definitely looking up in his life, absolutely. I told you there's life after the pit. There is purpose to the pain. And maybe that's what Joseph is thinking at this point. He's thinking, man, you know what? It was kind of tough there for a while. I mean, I grew up with a silver spoon. I was daddy's favorite boy. But then things went downhill from there. I'm a slave, but at least now things are looking up for me. So God was able to take all those sour lemons, and he made a big old fresh batch of lemonade. And everything that he touched turned to gold. It's a great story. Verse 5 from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian master because of Joseph. I know y'all got nothing. I just think that what we as Christians should be able to do, you know, you're looking for a job, you know, maybe you're, putting, you're filling out a resume, maybe you're filling out some kind of job application, we should be able to put on there. Like, I'm a Christian and I'm really blessed by God. Come on, y'all with me? Come on. I just, I'm dumb as a rock. I'm dumb as a sack of hair. My work ethic's not too good, but I'm a Christian. And Jesus really loves me. He loves me more than he does you. And so I'm just saying, like the blessings I get, things are going to spill out of me, and they're, gonna, they're just going to overflow and get all over you. You should hire me. And maybe you should show them this passage of Scripture. Okay, maybe not. But anyway. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge, and he didn't concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Wow, it's an awesome story. And then it says, now Joseph was well built. Mark, Chris, God will stand up. and <laughs> Well built and handsome. Now the lady said, Y'all don't know what to do with that. There's only one other person, really, um, in the Old Testament where these two Hebrew words are used to describe such beauty. And you know who that was? No. You're wrong. It was, it was Joseph's mama. It was Rachel. Wow. Isn't that cool? So, like, good looks runs in the family. So, you're looking at this thing now thinking, man, this dude's got it going on. He's well-built. He was probably on Lynn's program. He, was, he worked out at Goals. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on here. I mean, this guy was a superstar, and he's good-looking, and now everything that he touches, God blesses. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. 
I'm just letting that settle just for a minute. I'm looking on the face of some men right now going, whoa. This is a blessing. Is it a blessing or a curse? So here's the thing. This is uh, the wife of a very powerful Egyptian official. So chances are really good that she's, she's an attractive woman. And the way that she propositions Joseph makes it really clear that she's the one in charge. In fact, the English, in English it says, come to bed with me. But I read in the Hebrew there's just two words. And these two words are, are very blunt. Tim Keller, I want to make sure that Tim Keller, you understand Tim Keller, not me, I didn't say this, Tim Keller said this, and he's a great theologian, he's a powerful author, he's a very gifted writer, and here's what he suggests, he suggests that you could translate this with two words, sex now. All God's people said, you don't know what to say, do you? If you're a man, you're thinking, amen, amen. You don't want to tell anybody, but that's what you're thinking. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that blew me away as I'm thinking, as I'm processing this story. So I'm thinking, wow. So here's this rich, powerful, beautiful woman that propositions a 17, 18-year-old young man who's in the height of his testosterone levels. He's separated from his family and friends. He's in a strange place called Egypt. And we all know that what, what happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. Yeah. That's a lot of temptation for a 17 or 18-year-old. Who are we kidding? That'd be a lot of temptation for any man here, right? She's rich. She's beautiful. She's powerful. And she's propositioning you to have a secret affair. So let me ask you this question. So who or what is the Potiphar's wife in your life right now? So maybe you're thinking, I can get out of this because you know what? I don't have some rich, beautiful, married woman proposition to me. And, and hopefully that's true. But I would say that 3,000 years later, the sin that ruins the reputation of many a good man, the repu- that, that ruins the reputation and the career of many a good man is still going to be sexual sin. I guess some things never change. And chances are, if you're like most people, male or female, man or woman, you face sexual temptation on a pretty regular basis. We live in a sex-crazed world. We do. So if you're married, is there someone that you're being drawn to? You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you haven't told anybody, but there's someone that you really are secretly, I mean, in your head, you're, you're kind of being drawn to. In fact, when that person walks in a room, I mean, you, they, they catch your eye. Maybe it's somebody that you work with. Who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's somebody at the grocery store. I don't, but there's somebody that you see on a regular basis, and when you see that person, you find yourself really deep down inside. You don't want to admit it, but you find yourself being drawn to that person. You're just kind of drawn to them. 
And maybe, maybe at work it went from being drawn to that person. You, find, you found yourself kind of hanging around her desk or his desk a little bit too much. You knew when to meet at the water cooler. You know what I'm talking about? Because you were drawn to that person. Then you found yourself, you know, maybe, maybe texting. And, and it was, oh, man, nobody understands me quite like he does. Nobody understands me quite like she does. I wish, I wish my husband would listen to me like he's listening to me. I wish, I wish she would, and whatever the case might be. And then you start having those texts. And they're innocent texts. They really are nothing sexual. But then suddenly it goes from texting to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should have a cup of coffee. And then it goes from texting to a cup of coffee to more texting. And suddenly you find yourself in a place that you never really dreamed that you would be. And maybe you've gotten emotionally attached. I'll never forget this. A few years ago, meeting with a couple, a married couple where he had cheated on her. And he made a big deal. We never had sex. We never had sex. But they had met. They had shared some very intimate details. She, I'll never forget this. This woman looks at me and looks at him and said, I wish it had just been sex. But it wasn't. He's emotionally attached. Or maybe... You're physically involved. And if you'd had any idea today's message was going to be what it is, you said, I wouldn't have gone. Because it's hot in here right now for you. I get that. Or maybe your Potiphar's wife is the internet. <clears throat> there was a time, I remember years ago, when we pastors would preach and we would primarily, when it comes to internet porn, be preaching to men. Ladies, everything that I understand now based on statistics is you've caught up with us. That internet porn is as addicting for women as it is for men. It's living in a fantasy world, isn't it? I'm not having an affair. I'm not cheating. I'm not doing anything wrong. <clears throat> it's living in a fantasy world where all of your emotional needs are being met. Or maybe you're single and you're Involved sexually with someone else who's single. And maybe you don't even think that it's sin because you just think everything in our culture says it's okay. It's, it's normal. In fact, it's abnormal if you find somebody that says they're a virgin. <clears throat> it's crazy talk. Let's just face it. Sexual temptation is probably stronger than any other temptation that we'll face. And Joseph, as a 17, 18-year-old kid, is feeling the full force of this temptation. But verse 8, it's, it's a crazy verse. It says he refused. But he refused. And listen to what he says. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, everything he owns. He's a, he's a rich, he's a powerful man, and everything he owns, he's entrusted to me. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How can I do then? How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, she was persistent. She wouldn't give up. He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. So how in the world did he do it? How does a 17-year-old man, how does a 17-year-old man find the strength and the courage to do something that a lot of grown men could not do? 
Oddly enough, I think that the resistance begins with the heart. I think it's a heart issue. And, and, and maybe it's just where the Lord has had me over the last few years. But honestly, I said it last week, I think, that we religious people put so much emphasis on actions. It's on what we do and what we don't do. What we abstain from. And we love to, you know, play our, beat our drum and tell everybody how holy we are. And we, we mark that holiness by the things that we don't do. And Jesus came along and he said, you know what, you may not do those things, but in your mind you're doing those things and you're just as guilty. What God is concerned about is a heart issue. He wants to know where your heart is. So I think resistance begins with the heart. And there's some really important things revealed about Joseph's heart in the passage I just read. First, it's his heart toward others. I think it's amazing. He's 17, 18 years old. And he says, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. And so the first thing that he's thinking about is how his sin would affect other people. I just think that's amazing for a 17-year-old. And so, like, for me, he went, in this passage, he went from, like, you know, chapter 37, being dumb as a sack of hair. I mean, I looked at him and went, whoa, I can't believe you did that. That's, like, stupid. And then you did that, I went, whoa, you're getting dumber. Are you running through the dumb forest and hitting every tree? I mean, something here is not, not really. I mean, then you get to this passage and you go, this is a depth of maturity like I've never seen before. Wow. It's amazing. Could you imagine could you imagine what would happen if before you had an affair, you had lunch with the spouse of the person that you're going to cheat with? Could you imagine what that would be like? Because maybe as you've met with that person, they've given you a certain image of, the, of, of their spouse. But what if, what if you said, you know what, let's, let's have lunch. I just want to kind of get to know you a little bit. I wonder if it would change anything for you. I wonder if it would change anything if you looked into the eyes of the person that you're about to betray with their spouse. Or what, what, if, what if you met with their kids? So like, what if, what if you said, you know what, I just want to meet with your family. So before we cheat, before we sleep together, before we go to the, you know, do drop in, whatever, before we do that, I just, want to, I just want to have a lunch with your family. We can just get everybody together, you know. What if you looked into the eyes of the children whose lives will be changed forever when you get caught? second thing about Joseph's heart that we see is really obvious is his heart towards sin. He's a 17-year-old, and he said, how can I do such a wicked thing? How, how, can, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin? He's with Mrs. Potiphar, who's rich, and beautiful, and powerful. And she, what she's offering is a secret affair. She said, nobody will ever know. The servants aren't going to tell. They're scared to death of me. I'm a powerful woman. And he, and he says no. And not only does he say no, but he calls it sin. He just says this is sin. And I think that most of us sort of agree when it comes to adultery, you know, what that is. And we say, yeah, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. It's betrayal. But I think where our culture tends to struggle is when it's not a married person. It's when it's just two consenting adults, two single people. Is it sin? 
And honestly, sometimes I think that we want to come up with the church, we want to come up with pat answers, and we want to tell yes, no, but we don't, we don't want to delve into the, to the depths of that. We don't understand why God said certain things. So what I've learned, in, what I've learned about God is that he, won't, he never gave a commandment that he wasn't more concerned about the person than he was the command. Are you with me? So what he's trying, I want to protect you. I, I want you to live in the perfect world. I'm trying, I'm trying to, to protect you and keep you safe from hurt and pain. And when you, when you venture outside of those boundaries is when you get in trouble. Well, the first century church was struggling too. You wouldn't think so, right? It's the New Testament. I thought they were all godly back in the day. They were struggling as much as us. And one of the places that this is addressed is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. He says, do you not know, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? Wow. You become one with another person. That's, that's a big deal. For it said, the two shall become one flesh. And, and what he's talking about, just so you know, this, this is very strong terms. This is not just, I'm, I'm connected to you, we're connected, we connected on a personal level, we connected on, a, on an emotional level, we connected on a sexual level, it's more than that. My life has been connected to another person, it's an unbreakable bond. Divorce does not break that bond. And some of you that have been through the heartbreak of divorce understand exactly what that means. It's actually quoting from the original marriage between Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. So the physical act of sex is always the expression of a whole life commitment to another person. Always. It's not casual sex. I've been in counseling situations, literally been in counseling situations over the year where a man would say, it's just casual sex. I go, no. I remember asking one guy one time, he was kind of arrogant, and I was younger, and I wasn't in a good mood, and so I said, I said, you got three kids and a wife. I said, give me, right now, give me, give me the birthday to your three kids. He couldn't do it. I said, really? You can't give me the birthday to your three children. He couldn't. I said, what, what was your wedding anniversary? Give me your wedding anniversary. Come on, right now, Friday, come on, give it to me. He couldn't. I said, so let me get this. So you can't remember four of the most significant dates in your life. The birth of your children and the day you got married, you can't remember that. But he admitted to me that he's never forgotten a single sexual encounter that he's ever had. I said, I thought it was just casual sex. The third thing, aren't you glad that I moved on? You mean to circle back around just for fun? Okay. This is a really big one. This is huge. The third thing you see about his heart is his heart toward God. His heart toward others. His heart toward sin. His heart toward God. He said, how then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, come on. He's a slave. I don't care how you dice it. That's not good. He went from being a favored son. He, he went from having these two dreams where he would rule over, literally, his people. To almost being beat to death and thrown in a pit. To being saved and then sold into slavery. Does this sound like a guy that at this point probably is going to be thinking about God? 
Most of the people that I've known, that I've talked to over the years, I've experienced in my own life, at a point like this, we're kind of angry and bitter at God. The thing that we don't want to be is in the presence of God. But the thing that this guy is aware of, he is aware of the presence of God. I just think that it's crazy how the 17, 18-year-old man who looked so dumb and reckless and stupid in chapter 37 has suddenly grown up. And now what he recognizes It's the presence of God, and he didn't want to disappoint God. I don't want to disappoint God. I love him, and he loves me. So Joseph has the right heart toward others, toward sin, toward God. So how does he handle the situation? Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. You're thinking, hmm, the music changes. If this is a movie, the mood, the, 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 the mood of the music changes and you know something's about to happen. She called him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. What does that mean? Sex now. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Wow. So what do you do when you're in a tempting situation? One word, starts with an R, ends with an N. Yeah, run. Don't put yourself in situations that you're likely to fall. I had a guy, a good friend of mine, called me a few weeks ago. He was at the beach with his family, and, and he told me the story. He said he was on the, family, he was on the beach with his family, and he said, man, it was he said, I hadn't been to the beach in a long time, and it was kind of crazy. And he said, so what he did was he literally turned his chair, and he, he faced another way. And his wife said, honey, what, what, what are you doing? Like he kind of turned away at that point. It would, it would have appeared as though he was turning away from the family. And he said, well, here's what you don't understand. What you don't, maybe you don't understand is I struggle. Sometimes I struggle with lust. And, and in this situation right now, I'm just struggling. And rather than her being repulsed or appalled, she said, wow. You would do that for me? Yeah. Maturity says run. Strength says run. So Joseph was faithful to God. He resisted temptation. And God immediately blessed him more than he'd ever been blessed in his life. Wrong. And you're thinking, I wouldn't have ended with another. Like last week, the pit and slavery wasn't a good place to end. It's gotta, I thought you said this was going to be an uplifting message. It is. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her husband's servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to make a sport out of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when I, he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until her master, until his master came home. When she told him the story, that Hebrew slave that you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife said he was angry. He was angry. He burned with anger. So you know what he did? He took him and he put him in prison. 
the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So if Joseph does the right thing, is falsely accused, and he's thrown in prison. So you're thinking, what lesson, pray tell, could we learn from this story? Don't expect life to suddenly get better just because you did the right thing. Ugh, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. I just got to be honest. It was, maybe this won't make you feel better about me as a pastor, but I'm telling you, it was a hard lesson for me to learn. I remember for Karen and I, we, we sold everything we had. We moved off to seminary. We had a little bit of money in the bank. In fact, I helped a, a buddy of mine that was struggling. I, I helped my mom, and we did some things there. And so, you know, but we went to seminary. We had a little bit of money in the bank. And, and, then, and then suddenly we go through all this money. I come to the end of seminary, and we, we were broke. We got nothing. And we're 3, 000, almost $3,000 in credit card debt. And I remember just saying, God, really? Hello? What, what are you doing up there? Like, are you, are you off on break? Did you take a vacation? Have you boys not been paying attention? Look, we've served you. We've given you everything we have. And now it's all gone. I expect better. You've probably never done that. It's probably just like me. But here's what I can promise you. If you resist temptation, it'll pay off in the long run. I can promise you that. I can tell you stories in my life over and over and over. I can tell you how 10, 15 years ago I had relationships, the closest people I had ever known in my life, and how those relationships were destroyed. And it took over 10 years later that those relationships were restored. But it took 10 years. We have a perspective on Joseph's life that we don't have on our own. You know why? Because we can read the end of his story. Some of you may have already done that. You, maybe you're new to church, but you thought, man, I got to check out this dude's life because this is crazy. I mean, like, really? I, this is in the Bible? Yeah. It, it really, this whole thing is in the Bible. And you would think, I would have left some of it out, and I would have just got, like, to chapter 50. I mean, I would have just, you know, I would have left out several of those chapters and said, well, it's not a big deal. You don't need to know all that. Let's just look how he wins in the end. The thing of it is, we have a perspective on his life that we don't have on our own because our stories are still being written. So what's the moral of the story? What's the moral of the story for those of us who are followers of Jesus? This is the only thing I cared about. I'm not going to lie. This is birthed from the depths of my heart. I've learned about me I can take the pain. I may whine a little bit. I may fuss a little bit. I may kick the tires a little bit. But I can take the pain as long as I know there's a purpose for the pain. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe at this stage of your life, if your story were being read, it would just be on the struggle part where God's not shown up, where you haven't been blessed, where you didn't get that job, where you didn't find that spouse, where whatever. But I want you to know there's a purpose to the pain. God never wastes a hurt. The one thing that's changed my life is understanding the depth of God's love. What I can tell you this morning is that God is crazy about you, and he wants a relationship with you. He's crazy about you.
loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And you can trust him. What about if you're not a follower of Jesus? What's the message for you? You're probably thinking, like, dude, I just want to go home. This is like depressing. Why would I want to give my life to a God when if he treats his own people like this? So what's the message for me? Joseph's journey is evidence that life with God is enough. You can't make this stuff up. And maybe you work with that Christian. Maybe you have that Christian in your family. Maybe that's your neighbor. And maybe you've looked and, and, and the story that you see is nothing but brokenness and hurt. But they still have a smile on their face. And you scratch your head and think, how in this world could you possibly feel the way you do about God? It's because they've experienced the presence of God. And they've experienced the love of God on the kind of level that you can't even explain. It makes no common sense. But you can be so overwhelmed with the power of God and the presence of God and the love of God that you can say, you know what, he's enough. And I've asked people that over the years, Christians that have gone through all kind of tragedy. I've looked at them and I've said, right now, you're going to have to answer the question, is Jesus enough? And the answer is yes. So maybe you've seen that Christian, you've worked with that Christian, you've lived with that Christian, and you've said, you know what, that's true. And maybe right now you've said, doggone it, I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. And if that's you, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And no one's looking around. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you'd like to be, then maybe you'd pray a prayer or something like this. Maybe you'd just say, Heavenly Father, I, I cannot physically see you but I can feel your presence and I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sin and from this day forward I want to fully commit my life to you I want to, I want to follow you for the rest of my life and just tell him tell him how much you love him and how much you appreciate the fact that he would be willing to go to the cross and to shed his blood on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. That's the depth of his love. And he's alive. And what you feel right now is the awesome presence of God, the creator of the universe. Isn't that, isn't that incredible that you feel this presence right now and you're just surrendering your life to him? Father, you are amazing absolutely amazing and Lord you are worth it and you're enough Lord I've experienced pain in my life and there's others who've experienced a lot worse than I have but Lord at the end of the day you're enough you're awesome to be in your presence Lord to hear you whisper in our ear and tell us that you love us It's amazing. There's nothing quite like it. And Lord, I do pray that for those of us that know you, is that folks that don't know you will be blessed to be around us. Lord, that we can love them with the love that you love us. That we'll overflow with that love, and that's the biggest blessing of all. 
God, that they can see you in us. Use us as a church, God. This is going to be an incredibly busy week. Staff and volunteers, Lord, are going to be working some insane hours. But Lord, will you help us once again to show this community the incredible love of the God that we serve. It's in the sweet name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.